0: Corinthians chapter 11, that's where we are this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, welcome to you. Second sermon in a series entitled Relationship Rehab. We're talking about emotionally healthy relationships. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about what it means to become more like Christ every day. And, and the strange thing is some of us who have been at it for years and years and years who claim that we have grown as disciples, and indeed we have by the metrics that we measure we we talk about church attendance or we talk about you know bible knowledge or serving in the church that sort of thing but but honestly when you look at scripture closely you look at something like the fruit of the spirit where every single fruit of the spirit is actually something that is only expressed in relationship love joy peace patience kindness i mean you can't do these things by yourself you need people And we all need people in our lives so that we can have somebody that we love more than we love ourselves. But we don't talk about this in church. We don't get to the place where we encourage emotionally healthy relationships and emotionally healthy discipleship. And and that's why I'm taking some time out to talk about what relationships in Christ should look like. I said last week that a lot of people come to church not to heal but to hide. We come not to heal, but to hide. So let's talk about this morning some of the ways in which we hide. Uh, we hide ourselves. We hide our hearts from one another, and therefore make it impossible to uh, honestly find love together. If you've ever been to a job interview lately, one of the most dreaded questions they'll ask you is always, um, "Tell me about your, your greatest weakness." <laughs> ever ever asked you that? Like you're going to tell them? I mean, you know, we're not idiots. You know, the, the guy who's about to hire you wants to know your greatest weakness. Actually, Monster.com, which is the job you know, finding and, and, and hiring website, gives you some strategies for how to answer that question, uh, because everybody knows you don't really want to answer that question, right? So Monster.com suggests that perhaps you share something that sounds like a weakness, but really isn't a weakness at all. You know, for example, when they say, tell me about your greatest weakness, you might say something like, well... Sometimes it seems like I just try too hard. I just, you know, I, I just don't know when to stop. See what you did there? Yeah. See, I see what you did there. You said it like you were gonna share a weakness, but that actually sounds kind of like a kind of like a strength. Or Monster.com says that you can actually share a strength, but then talk about share a weakness, but then talk about how you overcame it. So you might say, Well, you know, uh, at, at times, I've often taken too much upon myself, but I have learned that, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. You know? Hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, Monster.com just suggests that maybe you share a weakness, like an actual weakness, but something that doesn't really apply to the job at all. So you might say something like, well, you know, uh, I, I just, you know, I, I suppose I have a real weakness for Chick-fil-A. I just, you know, I just love those chicken minis, you know? So, hmm, yeah, Okay. But understand that the fact is, revealing our weaknesses is one of the last things in the world that we want to do. It just is. Nobody wants to be weak. Nobody wants to give anybody else insight into the ways in which we are weak. And so whether it's on a job interview or in church or in marriage or in dating or at school, most of us spend a lot of time trying to, in one way or another, present an image that is uh, devoid of weakness. But just what if, what if sharing weakness is really something of a key to being in loving relationships? As a matter of fact, what if if, if I don't show you my weakness, what if you can't really know me? And if you can't know me, what if you can't really love me? Did you understand where this goes? So... Second Corinthians chapter 11, I, I, I've taken this to Paul here because he has this incredible opportunity to talk about strengths, but instead he just talks about weakness and he seems pretty stubborn about it as if that's the point he's making. Back in the year 2000, there was a pastor in Austin, Texas. His name was Kenneth Phillips. Pastor Kenneth Phillips was the pastor. He's still the pastor emeritus of a church called Promised Land Church, Austin, Texas. Pastor Kenneth was a very dedicated, uh, good pastor, good man. He was preaching from the book of Acts uh, in a large congregation. There were probably about 2,000 in attendance on this particular Sunday. And there was a television audience. Pastor Kenneth was very earnestly trying to preach a sermon on the sin of pride and and about vanity and how pride and vanity can be barriers in our relationship with God, preventing God from doing what he wants to do in the church. And Pastor Kenneth had been preparing this sermon all week long. And so he knew what the Holy Spirit was was telling him to do. Here's the thing. Pastor Ken Phillips when he was a young man, had started losing his hair, just like his, you know, like a lot of guys, his hairline just receded. But, but Pastor Ken couldn't take it. So he started wearing a wig, like a hairpiece, way back in the day. So the fact is, he'd want a hairpiece so long, the church members had no idea. So on a, I think it was June 4th, Sunday in the year 2000, in the middle of this sermon, passionate sermon on the sin of vanity and pride, uh, Pastor Ken Phillips just reached up in the middle of the sermon without any warning and tore off his wig. I mean, the church members gasped. (gasps) I mean, they, they, they shrieked. Women screamed. People broke out in prayer. I'm not kidding. I mean, the church just came apart. Staff members said it felt like they were looking at the pastor naked. I mean, like they shouldn't look. It, it felt like that, but there he was, all of a sudden, standing bald in, in front of them. People didn't know what to do. I mean, I had no idea what to do. Revival broke out. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Revival broke out. This, this night changed lives. I mean, people who were there that night, they, they were changed permanently and it's just amazing what started happening in the church I mean this man took off his hairpiece and, and I mean as I said people broke out in prayer I mean, families canceled vacations to spend more time to talk about what it would look like for them to to humble themselves before God. Parents unplugged TVs and devices to spend more time together. Young people made pledges to dress more modestly. I mean, they went on and on and on. This revival that started in Promised Land Church in the year 2000 in Austin, Texas, actually began to make the newspapers around the world It started something of a revolution in worship music. I mean, it all started right there when Ken Phillips took off his wig. They called it the hairpiece revival. I'm not kidding you. You can Google it. The hairpiece revival is a real thing. And y'all aren't sure I'm telling you, and tr- y'all think I'm making it up, and I would, I would give a kidney out of my body if I was wearing a wig right now, because I would just love, <laughs> wouldn't this be the greatest moment ever just to go, wow, ah, you know, I would so do it. I would so, do it. I'd do it just to watch y'all's face. Um, hairpiece revival, are you kidding me? I, I mean, that started a revival? How? What? I I mean, it's the power, not so much of a bald head. It's the power of a single bare soul. You know what I mean? Just a man who for the first time in his ministry was willing just to show up and be seen for who he was, you know? There's incredible power in that. It's exactly what I'm trying to make you understand that, that, that Paul's talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, Paul is facing opponents, opposition. You think, who would oppose Paul? Well, a whole lot of people. I mean, we only know Paul from his letters you know, that, that we find in the New Testament, and we have a great respect for him. But in his day, the reviews were mixed. And at the church of Corinth at this particular time, he's hanging on by a thread. Now, understand, he planted this church, but, but they really don't consider that something at this point that absolutely gives him credentials. There are a lot of people who question Paul's credentials at all. I mean, he may be an apostle, but they don't really think much of his apostleship. I mean, people criticize Paul in, in all the ways that Paul can be criticized. In his day, people said he was ugly. People said that he could not preach at the church at Corinth. That's what they're saying right now. That he writes a pretty good letter, but he, you know, in person, he's weak. You you know, he he couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, that's what they say about him, and on and on and on. Now, dripping with sarcasm, but Paul talks about his opponents. He calls them the super apostles. Isn't that terrific? The super apostles. You know, these guys got resumes, and and, I mean, these guys, when they preach, I mean, you know you've been preached to. These guys have seminary degrees, right? These guys got three-piece suits, and when they come and they preach revival at your church, you know you've been preached to. The super apostles, they would take up love offerings. Paul never did that, you see. Paul never took a nickel for his preaching, and so people started saying, well, you know why he don't take a nickel? Because it ain't worth a nickel to hear him preach. I mean, this is exactly what people said. So this is not really the second letter. We don't know how many letters go back and forth between Paul and the church at Corinth. But in 2 Corinthians, he has this real need and this opportunity once and for all to polish his resume with these people. To help them understand what is it that that makes you worth, apostleship, what is it that makes you worth listening to. And and this is what he comes up with. This. This. To chapter 11, start with me in verse 24. Emma read it perfectly, but let me do it again. Verse 24, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. I mean, so Paul like leads with, I have been beaten with everything you can beat a person with. Like what? Like if we had a guest preacher and he started talking, he said, yeah, last time I preached revival, you know, they, they beat me. Mm, you, know, do, do, you know, do we really want this guy? I mean, understand, this is the impression Paul leaves Oh, what? Yeah, last town where I was preaching, you know, they ran me out of town. They had to slip me out in a basket, you know. They stoned me and left me for dead. I mean, this is what Paul says. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, not like stoned like you're thinking, but stoned. They tried to kill him with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and robbers. Faced danger from my own people, the Jews, the Gentiles. The Jews hate me, the Gentiles hate me. Everybody hates me. I've faced danger in the cities, the deserts, the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but aren't. I've worked hard and long, endured many sleepless nights. I've been hungry, thirsty. I've been without food. I've shivered in the cold. Never had enough clothes to keep me warm. I mean, what? This is not how we do. When you're trying to win people over, when you're trying to impress them, when you're trying to make them understand what it is that makes you worth something, this isn't what you do. Now, I can just speak as a preacher. This isn't how preachers talk. This is not what you do, Paul. Paul. You know, if I were Paul, I mean, I could rewrite this for him. I, I could write this up nicely for him, honestly. I could. I could edit this. For one thing, I'd say, Paul, you know, why don't you mention, you know, the nice church you planted in Ephesus? Like, I would lead with that. I've, I've planted churches he doesn't even mention. Planted a pretty nice church in Ephesus. I've been mentoring a few young men. Maybe you heard of Timothy, Titus. You know, he could mention the young men that he's mentoring, I mean, shoot fire. I'm telling you one thing. If I were Paul, I would drop in there. Yeah, I may or may not be writing a book of the Bible right now. I've been in some discussions with Zondervan about publishing this little book called 2 Corinthians. Maybe you've heard of it. I mean, how do you not? How do you not just, you know, throw in the stuff that, you know, lets them understand? I mean, I, I got something on something, you know? No. No. Paul actually leaves in everything you and me take out, and he takes out everything that you and I would put in. It is almost like he is determined, just absolutely determined in every way not to present himself as if he's all that. it's, It's kind of amazing the power of a bare soul. Because here's what Paul says, verse 30. If I must boast, I'd rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. I, I just want to suggest to you that this is exactly the opposite of the way you and I approach relationships and life. We really don't try to shine a light in any way on our weaknesses. That, that, that that's what we call vulnerability. To to make yourself vulnerable, which means you give people the rope that they could use to hang you if they wanted to hang you. You're giving them the ammunition, you know, to take you out if they wanted to take you out. But but Paul absolutely refuses to live any other way. He is one bare, vulnerable soul in front of these people. He says, "You want to know what qualifies me to be an apostle?" I've hungered for it. I've thirsted for it. I've shivered in the cold. I've been beaten with everything you can beat a man with. I'm telling you one thing. I bleed for this. I bleed for this. <laughs> now, th- does that make him sound weak? Well, yes. No, <laughs> It just really depends on your perspective, and and the perspective that you and I should have is the perspective of Jesus, who himself set aside everything that pertained to his glory. He, who himself was in every very nature God, he set all of that aside, emptied himself, took on the form of a slave, took on the form of a servant, all the way to the point of death on the cross for the sake of saving us. So, if Jesus himself, if, if this is his attitude, and if this is Paul's attitude, then understand, this has to be our attitude as well. We have to get past that idea that we always must present ourselves as having our lives together. As presenting ourselves as always, always on top of everything. Strength, you know, and and, 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 and Poise. In every situation, this is just how we approach life and how we approach people. We want people to think of us in the best possible light. But understand, this is not Paul's way. And this is why, this is what Paul says. God's strength is applied exactly where your strength runs out. God's strength is applied exactly in that place where your strength runs out. So the story you tell about God showing up is inevitably a story about how desperately you needed him. Are you following me? So if in your life you will never let people see you sweat, if in your life you never let people see the ways in which you are weak, then understand in your life they will never be able to see all of the ways in which God works through you. If you're not willing To tell a story about how you were weak or how you were desperate or how you were struggling. If you're never willing to tell the story about how you were almost dead, understand, then that means you can never tell all of the best stories about how God showed up. And and brought you back and restored you. All of the times in which he's shown his light in your darkness, when he was strength in your weakness. If you will not tell any stories about how you needed him, then you don't have any stories to tell anybody about how God showed up for you. And this is what Paul says. If, If Paul goes out and only makes himself look great then in his life, he isn't able to point to the greatness of God. And in that way, he would literally distort the gospel. Literally distort the gospel. Because if he goes out and becomes a gospel of Paul, and a gospel of how Paul is great, and Paul is strong, and Paul doesn't need the Lord, and Paul doesn't need anybody else, then understand, he absolutely poisons the gospel. Which says, in our weakness, Christ is strong. So is it possible that we come to church to hide and not to heal? We we say we want healing. We say we want God to do these things for us. Most of us carry these heavy, heavy burdens into this place Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But it's always interesting, and we talk about it. The way if I said, okay, I'll take out my pen and, and I'll write down your prayer requests and we start going over prayer requests, it's amazing. I have 300 people in this room, but I won't have a single prayer request for somebody in this room. Y'all gonna have me praying for some gallbladder in Topeka, Kansas. You know, my boss's wife's cousin had a dog that ran away and landed in the yard of a woman named Mary Who's got pancreatitis? Pray for her. You know, I'm like, dog, Mary, pancreas. I just write things down and go. It is just really rare that anybody in this church ever speaks up and says, me, me, me. Why is that? Why is it? that like the church family doesn't hear about your marriage problems until you file for divorce? Like, like Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you sit in the pew and you put on a face like everything's great. Why is it that you feel like you have to sit here like everything is great? I, I mean, we're never really willing to let anybody see, to let anybody know the ways in which we struggle and I'm telling you that that's what I mean when I say we come to church and hide. And, and for that reason, we never heal. We talk about, you know, the ways in which, you know, the, the world struggles. And, and I hear people say, you know, I don't know, how, I don't know how people do it if they didn't have the church, you know. But the fact is a lot of you are doing it right now without the church because you don't ever have any need for anybody or, or, or anything. It's just never, ever a situation where you allow anybody in your life in such a way where they might see a need. You work really hard, as a matter of fact, to make sure that you've always, you know, got your life polished with a bow, you know, tied on top. Talking to one of the senior adult ladies from, from a couple of years back and. uh She was talking about, like, supper clubs, and she said, yeah, me and the neighbors, and she named several families. I knew all the families. She said, we used to just get together for supper, you know, every week. I said, y'all did that every week? She said, yeah, we just get together and bring leftovers with the kids, and we'd, you know, eat at each other's houses, you know, know, several times a week. (laughs) Like, wait, wait, stop. Like, you're telling me. That y'all used to do this, you know, like several times a week. They just in and out of each other's houses. I find that amazing. Because unless y'all are just doing this and not inviting me, which is possible, we don't live that way anymore. We don't live that way anymore. Now, nothing against any of our, you know, former senior ladies in their houses. But y'all know how grandma houses are, right? Like our, the, the houses are talking about were like little houses, Like little bitty houses with like little tables and you just pull up chairs and sit around the table, you know, and and, and none of it's fancy. You know, like nobody got this recipe off of Pinterest. You know, mostly it's simple. Whatever whatever you have, you put it in a pan and add bacon grease. And it's going to be good. You know, and then you just invite people, and everybody comes, and the kids, you know, go through that house, and you're not worried about them tearing anything up. Why? Because there ain't anything to tear up. You know, it's just your house. You know, and and nobody's going back through, you know, to make sure that the bathroom's clean because, like, well, everybody's got a bathroom, and everybody's bathrooms are dirty in exactly the same ways. You know, you know what I mean? So I'm just saying that it's possible that in previous generations, not that long ago, people were just much more willing to be seen for how they lived in their own house. But like right now, like if one of us just showed up at your door unannounced and knocked on the door, you would hide. Like you would turn off the TV and act like you're not home. It's just that idea that you're about to open the door and somebody's going to see your house. Okay, Okay. this is the house that you never stop decorating. Like, like your grandma never made a single trip to Hobby Lobby. You know, she never did. She never did. And yet you're constantly decorating and redecorating, but at the same time, your house that is just so important to you, you just can't bear the thought that somebody might walk in and see how you live in it. Like, like you got to rearrange it so it looks like a magazine, and then invite people over. I, I, I'm not just talking about how we should, we should be more willing to come and go out of each other's houses. I think we've lost something there. But I just want to point out that attitude. That attitude that I don't think that I don't think I could bear to let other people really know who I am and how I live and and, and what kind of mess I have. It's just this idea that that, that we're just going to live behind this sort of shield and we're never going to let anybody close enough to know we ain't perfect. Are y'all with me? Y'all ain't ever invite me over now, are you? I'm never coming over here. Y'all can come to my house. I I just love how Paul does all this talking about his weakness with the very people who could honestly use all this information against him, but Paul, Paul... Paul don't care. You know, at this point, I've been beaten and run out of every church in the world. Y'all can beat me and run me out too, you know, because honestly, that's not one of Paul's goals. Notice what he says, verse 31, I love this. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of eternal praise. God is worthy. And notice how quickly he goes there. So he's talking about all of his weakness and all of his woundedness, but then he goes straight to the worthiness of God. And see, this is sort of the difference. You and I sort of forget who the worthy one is. We forget where perfection actually resides. We want to be perfect. We want to be praiseworthy. We want to be worthy. But, but Paul, that's not his struggle. That's not his struggle at all. But Paul doesn't mind being weak because he understands that Christ and Christ alone is worthy. And then Paul knows that all of Christ's worthiness is just given to him as a gift. So Paul is able to stand and live peacefully and joyfully in just the worthiness that Christ has and the worthiness that Christ gives. And that means he doesn't have to prove anything to people. He doesn't have to perform in such a way where people begin to applaud him. I mean, none of that. He doesn't have to earn anything from people. And what people end up thinking about him doesn't keep him awake at all because he understands where he stands in Christ, who alone is worthy. So, this is just a, a couple of words of advice I would give you, and this is relational advice here. First, stand in the worthiness Christ has given you. Now, you're going to have to let these words settle, because I think some of you just hear that, and you don't understand what I'm saying. Stand in the worthiness Christ has given you. It, it's grace. It, it's a gift. The, the worthiness. You understand? Which means you don't have to pretend or perform for it. You don't have to act like you're something that you're not. You don't have to act like something that you wish you were. You can just absolutely, willingly, courageously show up and be seen for who you are. Do You understand? Because Christ is the one who declares you worthy. Christ loves you. He accepts you. He loves you enough to die for you. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have to be perfect because he's already loved you in all of your imperfection. Do you see that? You don't have to hide anything because the only one who can judge you already knows everything. Stand in the worthiness Christ has given you. Stand in the worthiness Christ has given you. You understand you are worthy because Christ says you're worthy. And not because of anything else you do, say, own. It just doesn't matter. You don't have to pretend or perform for it. Next, let them see your scars. Now, there's a difference between a scar and a wound, right? What's the difference? What's a wound? What's a scar? Yeah, yeah, the difference is healing, right? The difference is healing. I'm not saying let people see your wounds. I'm not saying hide things, but I'm just saying that there's a healing process that needs to take place in order for you and me to be healthy. And there are a lot of us walking around wounded because we have never, ever been willing to surrender to the Spirit in such a way where we could find healing. And so we continue to step into every day of our lives. We step into every relationship with the same gaping wounds that that we've been carrying for years. And I need you to understand there's nothing normal about that. We all get wounded, but but you're not supposed to live your life and never find healing. You're not supposed to continue to repeat all of the same mistakes and all the same kinds of relationships. You're not supposed to divorce one guy and then go out and find another guy who is bound and determined to be just as terrible to you as the last guy. I mean, you know, you just repeat the same patterns because you're never finding any healing. The healing comes from Christ And please understand, Christ loves to do his work through people. And so the emotional, the relational healing that you and I require, it happens in community. It happens with people. It doesn't happen with you at home in your gown, you know, just watching the view and and trying to be a better person. You need relationships. You need people in your life. You need somebody always in front of you so that you have somebody else to love more than you love yourself. you got to practice all the fruit of the Spirit. You need some really difficult people in your face so that you can practice patience every single day. Understand? Patience, love, and kindness, and forgiveness. you got to practice these things. You need people. And so this healing happens in community. And that's why I say you got to let people see your scars. There's some of you in this room, and you have lived the kind of painful stories that somebody else has lived, and they need to hear how you found healing, how you found hope, how you didn't just give up altogether. I mean, some of you have walked through divorce and you come out on the other side with with, with a brand new opportunity to start fresh and let God take you forward learning lessons from the past. But I'm telling you, not everybody knows how to do that. If you're willing to let people see your scars, if you're willing to tell the story of how you desperately needed the Lord and then the Lord showed up and, and this is what he did in my life, we need this with each other but we don't do a lot of this. Some of you don't do any of this. I'm I'm telling you, just a little more willing to speak up, to show up, to be seen, to stop acting like you never had any problems. You know, To stop sharing everybody else's prayer requests, but then never asking for any help on your own. I mean, if if people understand the ways in which you're struggling, you'll be surprised that the ways they'll just turn around and be a part of your healing. People in this room who've gone through exactly what you've gone through, they don't even know to help you because they don't even know you're hurting. Let people see your scars, Let, let them see your scars. The next one, these words sound strange. Embrace excruciating vulnerability. I choose this word on purpose. I'm a word guy, and excruciating, you know literally comes from the word where we get like crucifixion. So it's this very Christ-centered word for me. Embrace excruciating vulnerability. I mean excruciating because it can be excruciating for you, it's just to be willing to let people see you for who you are. There's also a lot of freedom in that. Again, I I just keep pointing you back to, to Paul. It's excruciatingly vulnerable when he says, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. You know, he's, talking, he's talking to one of the very churches, and he's just saying, you know, I've been stoned, I, I've been beaten, I, I've been left for dead, I've shivered in the cold, I've been shipwrecked, I've been robbed, I've nearly drowned in rivers, but I'm telling you one thing, none of that is as painful as what I'm going through with you folks right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's vulnerability. That's just putting your heart out there. And when you give somebody your heart like that, There is no way in the world that you can be sure that they're not just going to, you know, I mean, they can do it. You give people that kind of access to your heart, and they can crush you, and some people will. Some people are not trustworthy with your pain, and some people will hurt you, and some people will disappoint you. And there's always that risk. When you're willing to show up and be seen for who you are and you're no longer hiding your flaws and no longer trying to conceal your scars, you're just gonna show up and let people see you for, for who you are in Christ. I'm telling you, there'll be people who will take advantage of that, people who won't understand. But if you don't take the risk of being rejected, you'll never really know the pleasure of being loved. They, they go together. The, the same wall that you build to keep people from hurting you is that wall that prevents them from getting in to love you. The vulnerability is just a part of it. Embrace excruciating vulnerability. As I've told many of you, I, I had my, um, I had a very serious uh, personal breakdown. original breakdown. Um, breakdown. 2006, I believe. Um, it came out of the blue. I mean, just out of the blue. I was... Actually, counseling, a poor woman, oh my goodness, I've never seen her since. I scared the life out of her. I, I just, um, it, it was my very first panic attack, and if you've never had a panic attack, you don't understand. I didn't understand until I had a panic attack, but I had a panic attack in the middle of a counseling session with a, with a woman who, who wasn't a member of our church, and she never came back. <laughs> I don't even know what happened to her, y'all, that day. I don't know, um, because... I just had, um, I thought I was having a stroke. I literally had slurred speech, which I can't explain. But I, I really thought I was dying. Um, I, I came completely unglued. I spent 12 hours in the ER that night. Once I realized that I was going to live, something worse Um, dawned upon me and that was the fact that now um, I was broken. And and nobody wants a broken pastor. And so I started trying to figure out um, how I was going to step in the pulpit and act like nothing was happening because that was my plan. I've got to I've got to show up in that pulpit and I've got to preach like I always preach. And that next Sunday, y'all happened to be coming home Sunday. It was a big day. Um, I was gonna have to show up in that pulpit and, and, and be me and I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I could not do that. Y'all, I was, I was so broken. Um, one day that week prior to Sunday, uh, poor, poor Casey, my wife is wonderful. Um, I was afraid, like, a panic attack is so severe that, like, I was afraid to come back. Like, I didn't feel like I could walk in the building. And so, I mean, like, and I had to preach on Sunday, but like, still on Thursday, I was, I I couldn't walk in the building for fear. So Casey, being Casey, said, get in the car. (laughs) I'm like, why? I'm taking you to church. No, you're not. Um, Yes, I am. Well, what am I going to do? You're going to walk in. Well, that's stupid. Well, you're going to do it. I'm not doing it. Yes, you are. What am I going to do? You're going to walk in. Just walk in? Yeah, just walk in. And do what? She said, just walk in your office, get a pencil, and come back. It's, it's just humiliating to stand in front of you and tell you that I was afraid to walk in my office and get a pencil and walk out. But that, that's where I was. That's 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 how bad it was. So Casey, um, she's awesome. <laughs> so she drove me, um, sat in the car, left the car running. You know, um, I walked in my office, got a pencil, walked out, and just thought, my ministry is over. It's Just over. And I didn't understand why. And so I had to figure out how to, how to tell everybody, you know, because at that point, pretending no longer seemed to be an option. My idea of ministry, as most of you know, and you all have been with me through all the years, God bless all of you, my idea of ministry for the first 10 years was just simply I'd do it by myself, and, and, and i do it uh, with strength, but not just strength, but I wanted to be Invincible. And I think in my mind I was doing all that for Jesus. I thought that, that was, you know, that, you know, just that, that was showing people what Jesus could do. But I knew that I wasn't going to be strong or invincible anymore. So that week I realized the only way that I could come back and preach, the only way I could imagine stepping up on Sunday was if I just told everybody what had happened. And that helped me, honestly. The idea of standing up in this pulpit one more Sunday and acting like I was okay was the most terrifying thing in the world. But the idea that I could step up and be honest sounded like something I could do. So I ruined that coming home Sunday, I can tell you that much. I, uh, I stepped up in the pulpit and I, I cried I also discovered something, and I said it, and some of you said, oh, Pastor Tim, that can't be true, but I think for the first time in my life that Sunday, it was a horrible sermon. It was a mess. It was more like a public self-disembowelment, you know, more than a sermon, but I learned that day what it felt like when... When I didn't have the strength and Christ would provide the strength. It's maybe the first sermon in my life where I just really knew, God, if you don't show up and do this for me, it won't happen. Because I can't make it happen. I've been preaching 10 years. You know, you think I would known by then what it felt like to have the Spirit just preach through you, you know, but I I had been too busy preaching, you know, through myself. Anyway, I stood in front of you all on that Sunday, and I just told you, I'm broken. I, I have, I'm broken down. Um, and you were very gracious. The deacon said, take all the time you need. And so we cleared my schedule. And, uh, and so I didn't know what was going to happen next. I just knew I had a clear schedule now. And I had a appointment with a counselor on Monday morning, so I was going to a counselor and, and, and try, to get, try to get healthy, try to get well. So I had a clear schedule, right, which, which helped me because I thought, okay, great. Nobody's going to make me go into church and get a pencil this week. Uh, <laughs> but even though I had a clear schedule, um, so many of you called me and came to see me. Uh, that was amazing to me. I guess I always thought I'm the pastor. I do the ministry. You people get ministered too. You know, but like for the first time, it took 10 years, but for the first time, you all just ministered to me and it was so sweet. I mean, thank you for being the church that you are. But something else happened. Uh, people started calling me to make appointments. And I'm like, uh, you know, the deacon said, take all the time you need. I'm going to, th- I'm taking like, you know, seven years, you know. Uh, but people are like, no, Pastor Tim, I need to see you this week. And I see you this week. And I'm like, did you not hear what I said in the pulpit? You know, it was in a counseling session like, like, that I broke. But people like, no, Pastor Tim, I need to talk to you now. I want to talk to you now. And that was the puzzle for me because some of the people calling me hadn't wanted to talk to me in 10 years. Like, I've been the pastor 10 years, and they never called and said, I need to talk to you now. And and so I asked, you know, listen, I've been your pastor 10 years. You've, You've never called me before. Why is this so important this week? And multiple people would say, Pastor Tim, it's just now I feel like I feel like now you would understand me. I think now you would get me. And so it was wonderful and horrible at the same time that I found myself trying to pastor, you know, and be with people and their struggles when I was struggling so. But I think my ministry started right there. I know the joy in ministry started right there because I learned the simplest lesson. And that's just, you know, y'all can give back to me at the very same time I give to you. And that's just okay. That, that I don't have to stand in front of you as some sort of invincible, bulletproof pastor. And if I have to do that, it's just exhausting. And I found out where that takes me. You know, eventually, if you try to be a machine, well, machines break down. We're not machines, you all. We're just people. And none of us is perfect, and and, and none of us has it all together. None of us has all the gifts, and we were never meant to. That was never the point. The point was always that what I'm lacking, you would have, and God brings us together in this marvelous church family so that we can share and, and, and live our lives together. And, and honestly, all of our strength comes from Jesus, In our weakness, He is strong. But, but, but in your life, if you're just willing to show up and be seen for who you are in Christ, then, then that points me back to Jesus. I understand, my goodness, this is how it works. In our weakness, in our honesty, in our vulnerability, we can just keep pointing people back to Jesus. But if we're too busy trying to show them that that we ourselves are the source, that we ourselves are strong, then we can spend lots and lots of Sundays in here and never, ever find Jesus. I I said that uh, as wounded and Broken as so many of us are, we still come to church. The very place where we could find healing, we come to church to hide. Um, The healing will never happen when we hide, but but behind this wall of strength that we try to build for ourselves, for others. So as it turns out, um, the, the sharing of weakness that Paul does in Corinthians, this Incredible voluntary emptying that Jesus does, where He just becomes weak and humble, and all the way to the point of death on the cross. And just understand that—that's what strength looks like. It's what love looks like. And if you and I are never really willing and able to show our weaknesses, to share our weaknesses we will never truly be willing and able to love one another. I choose love. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that in our weakness you are strong I thank you, Lord, that in every single story of how desperately we needed you, we have a story to tell of how faithfully you showed up for us, how you've never, ever left us or abandoned us or forsaken us, Lord. So I pray that as a church family, Lord, I pray that just as as human beings, we would be a little less concerned about how we look and a little more concerned, Lord, about how you look, about how you are seen in our lives, in the story of our lives. Lord, make us a little less concerned that other people might might see our flaws and a little more willing, Lord, just to show up and be seen for who we are, standing in the worthiness that comes because of Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have loved me and accepted me and declared me righteous and worthy, exactly like I am. It's called grace. So, Lord, help me to live in grace and celebrate that grace, share that grace with every single person around me. Lord, it turns out love is difficult. It it, it turns out, Lord, that love almost always requires a sacrifice. It turns out, Lord, that love always requires a, a bare soul. So, Lord, help us today to come out from our hiding to bear our souls and find healing and love in Jesus.